The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. Speaking about economic growth and federal deregulation last year, President Trump discussed his administration's efforts to restart several pipeline projects. We've begun the most far-reaching regulatory reform in American history. We've approved long-stalled projects like the Keystone XL and the Dakota Access Pipelines. But even though the Trump administration has approved the projects, that doesn't mean they're going forward, as lawsuits continue to interfere with their progress. Joining me is Brandon Barnes, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. Brandon, set the stage for us. How many pipeline projects is the Trump administration trying to restart, and where has it succeeded? Well, I think that uh, any of the positive vibes that the Trump administration gave to the pipeline companies coming in has sort of receded in a major way from this new obstacle course they're facing in the courts and through the states. So, you know, some of the crude pipes that are big in the news, Dakota Access and Keystone. Keystone's still hanging out there, waiting. Got a number of pipes in the Northeast, which would help alleviate some of the much-needed capacity constraints for Marcellus and Utica producers. There's just not enough infrastructure to get the gas out, so it's just sitting there. And you've, I mean, in the last two years, we've been tracking all these these various litigations and across the country, most concentrated in that northeastern area, but there are at least six or seven pipelines that have been stymied by these various actions. So you have intervention by the courts, the states, and the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. What's the role of each? I think that's a very important question to ask because it's largely misunderstood uh, by investors and the general public. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, as, as some call it, um, has jurisdiction over natural gas pipelines from tip to tail. So they regulate and approve the siting or where those the route and the envir- they do the environmental for natural gas pipelines that are moving between states. And those projects can't be built until FERC says, okay. That's not true for crude pipelines, which are regulated under a different set of laws. And so the federal jurisdiction, FERC doesn't get involved on the siting. The feds get involved only where there's federal jurisdiction incurred. So if they're crossing a navigable water, you may need Army Corps to get involved. That's Dakota Access. So uh, I think the biggest area where this federal preemption issue comes into play is on those natural gas pipelines, which are so needed for these producers in the Northeast. States, very different. They have this state permitting authority that's been, they've had for years. It's been delegated, especially on the water side, by EPA. FERC won't allow projects to be built until they've gotten all of their state permits. So the states sort of have this effective 
hijack that they can use to take over these projects, even though FERC has federal oversight over everything. So you write that the lawsuits have basically used a shotgun approach. Explain that and how successful or unsuccessful they've been. June, I think it's the it's the case of su- success begets success. So where there is success opposing these projects, those get funded. And we've seen the midstream area, these pipelines, get funded more and more on the legal side where they've gotten success. So the shotgun approach here is these lawsuits come in a number of different venues. They challenge every single one of the permits. They go to the federal side. They challenge the FERC certificate. They go to the state side, and they challenge the water permits, and they find a way. And the, the approach has largely been successful, but much more so recently than in the past. And I, I really do believe that it's, it has to do with how much activity and how, how much force they're throwing. It's almost like blunt force they're throwing at through the courts. Is it environmental groups that are challenging these pipelines? Certainly your traditional opponents of pipelines are the environmental groups, and they are very much involved. They have, they have all of the expertise and experience needed in the courts to, to bring these very nuanced challenges to projects. But also there's a very strong element of NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. Mm-hmm. That has always been a problem for energy projects and pipelines in particular, and it certainly doesn't help when you have explosions or, or leaks or something like that hitting the news that that really if you know a pipeline's going through your backyard you may want to oppose it and you're going to be very anxious to get involved speaking about FERC you describe how a federal court decision has influenced FERC and changed it perhaps yeah I think uh, and the one I'm referring to is is related to the southeast market pipeline which involves the sable trail pipeline Um, And that was a a, a sort of a sea change, if you're following this, where the federal court, the D.C. Circuit, said, FERC, you didn't consider end-use greenhouse gas emissions when you did your environmental review, which is a a real change from what we've seen when when challenges have been brought to LNG projects or pipelines. FERC, you know, they just regulate the pipeline. They're supposed to look at the pipeline and not necessarily how the gas at the end is going to be used and what those that emissions profile or what the potential environmental impact is going to look like. So this is dramatically expanding the scope of FERC's review and by doing so expanding the ability for opponents to challenge these projects and potentially force FERC to do a re-review or maybe change the calculus for whether that project's actually beneficial or worth doing and therefore should get approved at all. And how have the commissioners reacted? For the most part in the past, we've seen commissioners sort of be on the same page. But starting when Norman Bay left, uh, back when Trump was elected, and since then, as as Commissioner Glick has been uh, involved, you've seen a movement where the Democrats, um, Cheryl LaFleur, Commissioner uh, Glick, have been using the certificates or the approvals for these pipelines as a way to dissent against maybe we don't need all these projects, maybe we should include greenhouse gas emissions in a different way. And I think in response to that, FERC has really taken up the mantle of looking at this process and they are currently reconsidering their policy on approving pipelines. So some more more to be found. About a minute here, Brandon. One state that is mentioned over and over again in your analysis is New York State. Is that a state that's particularly difficult? 
It is the toughest of the nuts to crack for pipelines. New York will continue to be the gateway uh, that remains closed for pipes trying to get from Marcellus, you know, Pennsylvania, into and through New York and into uh, the New England states. That has just been a place of, of you just cannot find any development and projects continue to be stopped by the state and the courts backing them. Well, your, your, your analysis is so thorough, and you've covered every case. So it's just amazing. Thanks so much, Brandon. That's Brandon Barnes. He's a Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.